Somebody asked me when the tickets are going to be available. The tickets are going to be out next week for the drama. So we'll have plenty of tickets available. You can distribute those tickets and invite people to the play. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 10. We're continuing in our march through the Bible. We're making great progress, are we not? This is probably one of the most exciting chapters that we're going to study in a long time. How many understand that? Now, I know that for many people, genealogies are not exactly the most moving and devotional passages. This chapter has tremendous, tremendous implications, and it's critical. Now, we're not going to go through it in great detail. I've done so much reading. I've just got blurry over the past few weeks reading all the background and history and such. And I'm just going to acquaint you with some of the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of Noah, and give you some indication of where these people migrated to. You have a map on the front of your notes that gives you uh, a sense of where the the sons and the grandsons of uh, Noah have have settled and their families spread from there. We'll give a little bit more detail and I want to point out a few things in the passage. But I, I want you to read with me and I want you to know that just being able to pronounce the names... Counts for something. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth are given first. Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. And then the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Katim, and the Rodanim. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizrahim, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtaka, the sons of Rama, Asheba, and Dadan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Mizrahim was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtuhites, Pathrusites, Kashluhites, from whom the Philistines came, and the Kaphtorites. 
Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Gergesites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, Hamathites. It's quite a few ites. <laughs> Later, the Canaanite clans scattered. And the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon towards Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the descendants of Ham by their clans, languages in their territories, and nations. And then lastly, the Semitic line. The sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpaxad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, Meshach. Arpaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber, one named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almodad, Shelef, Hazaramaveth. You do that. Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards the Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. And these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. And from these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. What a tremendous, tremendous record it records the genealogies, obviously, all the families of Noah, and they are the origin of all the nations of the world today. There is no comparable catalog of ancient peoples available from any other source that, that even comes close to what we're given in the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis. One noted archaeologist from this past century, the 20th century, Dr. William Albright, and himself not a believer. This is, this is interesting. He himself was not a believer in the infallibility of the Scriptures. He did not believe that the Bible was the infallible Word of God. He thought there were errors and such. So from that background, a world-noted archaeologist and ethnologist, listen to this quote, he says of chapter 10 of the book of Genesis that it stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. He says the table of nations, that which is in chapter 10, remains an astonishingly accurate document. This chapter is an amazing, amazing document 
that's been passed down to us. It is the one and only link. You have to appreciate this. It is the one and only link between the historic nations of the ancient Near East and the prehistoric times of Noah and the people who lived prior to the days of the flood. This chapter connects them. There is no other record in all of human history and antiquity that gives us this connection and this information. The grandsons and the great-grandsons of Noah are listed. In the case of Shem, they're listed to the sixth generation. There is nothing in any other ancient writing discovered by archaeologists which is at all comparable in scope and in accuracy to what we have given to us in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis. This is indeed a remarkable, remarkable document. Now the question might come up, who compiled this document? Who wrote it down? Who put all of the records together in this one form? I want to suggest to you, and I can't be definitive about this, but I want to suggest to you that I think maybe it was Shem who kept the family records. And let me tell you why I think it's Shem. He was no doubt most interested in God's promise of the coming seed. Now why would he, of all people, be most interested in God's promise of the coming seed? Because it's going to be through his line, right? What was the promise? In chapter, we look back at chapter 9, verse 26. What was the prophecy to Shem? That his line would be what? That line, huh? Blessed be the God of Shem. So that's a, that's a significant prophetic utterance to him. And so now he knows, and no doubt Noah, his father, had observed his life and saw that he had a love and a faith in God, that this would be the line through which the seed of the woman would eventually come. So it makes sense then that Shem, being most interested in that, would keep this record. He lived 502 years after the flood. Chapter 11, verses 10 and 11 give us that insight. He lived 502 years after the flood, after the flood which would have included the entire period recorded in the Table of Nations. So no doubt he would have visibility of all of these descendants, all of the family tree. And it's interesting that the sons of Ham and the sons of Japheth, <clears throat> when you look at the account, are only given to the third generation. And yet the <clears throat> descendants of Shem extend, as I said earlier, to the sixth generation. And assuming Shem then to be the original compiler of this family tree, it would be appropriate that he should begin with the family of his older brother Japheth, then turn to his younger brother Ham, record his family, and leave his own to the last. And that's exactly the way you have it. Now Japheth's sons are listed in verse 2. We read those names. I'm not going to read them again to you. <clears throat> most all of these names, fascinating, most all of these names have been traced and they are recognized as the ancestors of what we would know as the Indo-European peoples. We'll start with Gomer. 
Gomer has generally been identified <clears throat> with the area north of the Black Sea. Uh, that, would, that area was given the name of, of Crimea. It's a southern Russian peninsula. You may no doubt heard the Crimean Peninsula. That's where Gomer would have settled. You have a map on the front of your bulletin. It will give you a picture of that. We're told Gomer had three sons, Ashkenaz, Ripoth, and Togarma. The Jews identified Ashkenaz with Germany, and even to this day, German Jews are called Ashkenazi. However, other scholars have uh, indicated that the Ashkenaz migrated to the mountain, mountains uh, of the area that's south of the Caspian Sea, and they became known as the Scythian people. And the Scythians were a very crude and very warlike people. In fact, uh, the name Scythian became uh, synonymous for barbarian. So when you, when you hear the barbarians are at the gate, that, that name barbarian literally came from, originally from the Scythian people who some scholars think uh, descended from the Ashkenaz. Ripoth, Josephus, who was the uh, historian, the Jewish historian for the Roman Empire, for the Roman emperors in the first centuries, Josephus identifies Ripoth as the ancestor of a group of people called the Paphlagonians. And they settled in Asia Minor on the southern edge of the Black Sea also. Tagorma was thought to be the ancestor of the ancient Armenians, of which I am one. Magog, <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you, the brother, hi, <laughs> Magog, Japheth's second son, the name can mean the place of Gog, May, Gog, May means the place of, the place of Gog, and that's generally identified uh, most recently with the uh, the old so uh, Soviet state of Georgia near the Black Sea. Josephus says that Magog, or Gog, was the ancestor of the Scythians also, who also originally inhabited the Black Sea area. So a lot of these people were in that particular area. In Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, we see Magog associated with two other sons of Japheth, Meshach and Tubal, Meshach has, is preserved in the name Muscovoy, the former name of Russia and indeed of Moscow. Tubal is known in the Assyrian monuments as the Tiburini, and they are probably have been preserved in the modern Russian city of Tobolsk. And again, from Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, they are associated with Rosh, a name from which the modern Russia gets its name. Generally speaking, therefore, the three sons of Japheth can be considered the progenitors of all the Russian peoples. Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal. Now we move to Medai, Medai is the ancestor of the Medes. We get to the book of Daniel, we'll, we'll study the Medes and the Medo-Persians. 
The Medes settled in what is now present-day Iran, Iraq, that area. It's thought that this group of Japhethites, from them, the Aryan peoples developed, and the Aryans later migrated eastward and became the progenitors of the Indian peoples, the people of India. Both Japheth and Javan, his son, are considered by many scholars to be the founders of the Greeks. So if you're Greek, probably from Japheth and Javan. Javan is listed as having four sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, Dodanum. Hellas is another name for Elisha, from which we get Hellespont or Hellenic, uh, another word that refers to the Greek culture. So Elisha was also part of this Greek environment. Tarshish has been identified with the early settlers of Spain and North Africa. Katim may refer to Cyprus, and to some extent maybe even Macedonia. There has been identified uh, uh, a, a name, Ma-Katim, which may mean um, the land of Katim. Also, you could say Ma-Katim could be Macedonia. There is a can be derived from that. Dodanum is the same as Rodanum, and Rodanum you find in First Chronicles chapter one verse seven. So both names apparently apply to the same person. His name is probably preserved in the geographical names Dardanelles and Rhodes. And the last son of Japheth, Tiras, according to Josephus, became the ancestor of the Thracians, and also possibly that Tiras gave rise to the Etruscan people of Italy. And then the account proceeds to the sons of Ham in verses 6 through 20. Cush is the same in the Bible as Ethiopia. The Cushites apparently first migrated south into Arabia, then crossed the Red Sea into the land known now as Ethiopia. Mizrahim is the ancestor of the Egyptians. In fact, Mizrahim is another name in the Bible for Egypt. We had a man come to church for the very first time. And how do I know he came for the very first time Friday night? He had a suit on, that's right. <laughs> he came up to me after the service, introduced himself, and he was from Egypt. He couldn't thank me enough for pointing out that the progenitor of the Egyptian people was Mizrahim. He didn't know that. Isn't that fascinating? Egypt is also called the land of Ham in Psalm 105, verse 23, suggesting possibly that Ham may have accompanied his son Mizrahim in the original settlement of the Nile Valley. We move to Put. Put in the Bible is the same as Libya, the region of North Africa, west of Egypt, Again, this from Josephus. Canaan is, of course, the ancestor of the Canaanites and gave his name to the land of Canaan. 
Cush and all of his other sons moved southward and westward into Arabia and into Africa. His most, his most illustrious son settled in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and apparently remained there even after the rest of the families had been compelled by the confusion of languages to move away. He remained in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. His name was Nimrod. And he apparently was the youngest son of Cush. He may have felt some kinship with his uncle Canaan. Canaan, the youngest son of Ham. Remember who was the focal point of the curse from Noah? Remember Ham? Ham, uh, Noah's youngest son, had dishonored him. And Noah pronounced the curse on his family, but the curse was directed to the youngest son, Canaan, which would necessarily mean it would include the whole family, down to the youngest son. So now here you have uh, Nimrod, the youngest son of Cush. He may have felt some kinship with his uncle, Canaan. Now Cush is Ham's oldest son. I want to suggest Cush is Ham's oldest son. Cush may have, over a period of time, come to resent the curse. He's the oldest son. He would probably take it upon himself to be angry over this curse. After all, he does not want to serve, nor does he want to see his family be a servant of servants. And as a result then, his youngest son, he names Nimrod. Some scholars believe that Nimrod means let us rebel. Rebel from what? Rebel from being a servant of servants to the descendants of the two other brothers, Japheth and Shem. Could you see that? Is that a possibility? So we read about Nimrod. Nimrod began to, to be a mighty warrior on the earth. The idea is he's a hero. The idea, he probably has attracted a tremendous following. He is probably the earliest, if you will, of world leaders. He probably had all of the Hamites and certainly... Uh, possibly many of the Semites and Japhethites under his influence and under his leadership. He was a mighty warrior on the earth. Nobody else in the account is given that description. And all these people finally settled in the fertile plain of Shinar and they began to build a great complex of cities with the beginning of this kingdom at Babel. That ought to tell us something, huh? Tells us something about the character of Nimrod. Nimrod became a mighty hunter before the Lord. I always puzzled over this passage. Was this guy a good guy, a bad guy? What was the deal? A mighty hunter before the Lord. Now certainly, as a mighty warrior, he was also a mighty hunter. And a mighty hunter, obviously, you would think of, of wild beasts, Right? But recall, when Noah came out of the ark and all the animals proceeded out of the ark, God said to Noah, 
that the fear of man would be in the animals. Obviously to protect Noah so they wouldn't be afraid of the animals. But no doubt there were probably still great beasts, wild beasts on the earth after the flood as those animals continued to grow and multiply. I mean, you and I would be a little bit afraid if, there, we, if we were told that in our neighborhood there were some wild dogs even on the loose, let alone wolves or coyotes or lions or tigers, right? And so no doubt uh, Nimrod, as a mighty hunter, probably uh, killed some of these wild animals. And in so doing... Uh, would acquire a great following. He would um, assume a role of hero to a lot of people during that period of time. And so as a mighty hunter, he would kill animals. But I want to suggest to you that it means more than just that. And I'll tell you why. A mighty hunter before the Lord, in the sense that he was also unrelenting in searching out and persuading men to obey him and follow him. I read an interesting quote in my studies from the Jewish Targum. Now, the Jewish Targum is the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, and it comments on the Old Testament. So these are ancient documents. And the Jewish Targum says this about Nimrod. He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, before the sight of the Lord. So where you see that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, he was powerful as a hunter and in wickedness in the sight of God. For he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Now, what was the judgment of the Lord in a specific way? Anybody remember? That the Hamitic line would what? Serve the Japhites and the Semites, right? That's the judgment of God. It wasn't just depart from the word of the Lord, depart, but it's depart from the judgment of God. He understood this is a judgment, and it certainly was. Depart from that. We're going to rebel. We're not going to serve them. You come and serve me. I'll lead you. This is remarkable. And so we understand a little bit more about Nimrod and the son as the son of Cush. Now, if we move on, not much is known about the sons of Mizraim. Perhaps they moved south and west into other parts of Africa. Ham's youngest son, Canaan, was very, very prolific. You read the the number of names, 11 sons and an unknown number of daughters, presumably. But this is very interesting. After naming the tribes descended from Canaan, the Bible makes this statement, and it's a significant statement. Here it is in verse 18. Later the Canaanite clans scattered. Do you see that in verse 18? That's how the NIV translates it. This is how the New American Standard translates it. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad, which seems to imply a much broader spreading. 
And the question is, what does it mean, and afterward? Afterward what? After what? I think it's the Tower of Babel. After the Tower of Babel. It is only the Canaanite clans that this statement is made. It's only about them. Not the Hamitic peoples. Not the rest of the Hamitics. Not the Japhetics. Not the Semitic peoples. Only the Canaanite clans are said uh, to have spread abroad. Perhaps this is best seen in their possible spread north and east into Asia and then ultimately via the Bering Sea land bridge which existed during the Ice Age when the water levels were much lower and people could actually walk across that particular area. There was a land bridge apparently into North and South America. The Hamatic peoples, the Canaanite peoples spread tremendously throughout the earth. One group, the Hittites, are thought to have spread to Asia Minor and perhaps even the tribe, the Sinite tribe, have gone as far into the east as China. Some scholars think we get the, another word for Chinese or China is Sino, S-I-N-O, from the Sinites. Interesting etymology of these names and words. The record of Ham's descendants is then summarized as Japheth had been by the statement that these were grouped by their clans, languages in their territories, and nations in verse 20. Now that tells us something very interesting. It tells us that Genesis chapter 10, when do you think Genesis chapter 10 was written? Before or after the Tower of Babel? After. Because it's... Only prior up to the Tower of Babel, people all spoke how many languages? One language. After the Tower of Babel, all the people were separated according to languages, and they were divided not only according to languages, but according to geographical areas. They would see them spread out. So chapter 10, though it comes before chapter 11, obviously, was written after Now Shem, if indeed he is the keeper of the family records, proceeds to describe his own family, which he knew from Noah's prophecy, chapter 9, verse 26, would be the one family chosen to transmit the knowledge of the true God and his promises to the later generations. You track the seed of the woman, you track God's line down now to Shem, and it'll come through Shem. And it's interesting, I think, to note that Shem is identified first as the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. This is absolutely fascinating. It's a hint of things to come. Scholars think that it's from Eber, and they read ancient monuments and and documents and uh, uh, passages and they read about this, this people, this unknown people called the Habiru. Habiru, who are thought to have descended from Eber. Eber gave rise to the Habiru. Does that sound familiar? Hebrew, that's right. The Hebrews came from Eber. And we'll see that tracked in chapter 11 next time. In fact, 
It is from Eber that the team Hebrew was derived. Abraham, in chapter 14, verse 13, was called for the very first time a Hebrew, indicating that he was a child of Eber. Now, in verse 22, five children of Shem are listed. These are interesting because they have tremendous influence on the ancient Near East and, and even down into uh, the uh, uh, first century. Elam is the ancestor of the Elamites. We meet the Elamites again in chapter 14 of Genesis in the time of Abram. There's a confederation of five kings that come and invade the land of Canaan. We'll read about that. Chedor Laomer is the king of the Elamites. And he leads this confederation. The Elamites apparently later merged with others, especially the Medes. Now, the Medes, remember, were descendants of who? Medi. The Medes were descendants of Medi. The Elamites merged with them. And so now you have Semitic peoples merging with Japhetic peoples. Now you have a beginning, a mixture of these families. And they formed the Persian Empire. And we see this, the Medo-Persians, later on when we meet Daniel. The other son, Asher, was the founder of the Assyrians. A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-N-S. Assyrians, not Syrians. The Assyrians are probably known as the fiercest people on the face of the earth in the ancient Near East. The most terrible people. The most cruel and the most fierce. However, as we saw in Genesis chapter 10, verse 11, Nimrod and his followers later invaded the land of Asher where he founded Nineveh. And if that's true the Assyrian peoples and culture were again a mixture of the Semitic and Hamitic lines. So you had the Semitic and Japhetic with the Medes, and now you have the Semitic and the Hamitic with the Assyrians. So we have these families now mixing. The next son, little is known of Aparkshad, except that he was in the direct line leading to Abraham. The fifth son was Aram. This is fascinating. Aram would become father of the Aramaeans. The Aramaeans would be the same as the Syrians. You know the present country of Syria today in the Middle East? Aram was the father of the Aramaeans. And these people did become a great, great nation, a fierce nation, powerful nation in the ancient Near East. And even there, they saw their Aramaic language become adopted as almost the language of the day in the nations and in the time of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. But not only that, the Aramaic language continued to be the language of the day down to the first century to the time of Christ. They spoke Aramaic. The most important son of Shem even though, again, nothing is known of him, was uh, a park sad, since he was in the line of the promised seed. He's important because he's critical to this continuation of the seed of the woman. Now, notice his descendants. 
We don't know much about him, but to him was born Shelah, and to Shelah was born Eber. What do we say about Eber? He's the progenitor of the Hebrews. Now notice to Hebrew, to Eber, Eber is born two sons. Who are the two sons born to Eber? Peleg and Joktan. Now the account, when you, as we continue the account, the account picks up Joktan's line. It doesn't talk about Peleg's line. You have to go over to chapter 10, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 10. Peleg's line is picked up there. But it's interesting, the name Peleg, he's, it means division. Because in his time, we're told, the earth was divided. Evidently, whatever happened, whatever this division, when the earth was divided, was such a, a memorable event that uh, Eber named his son in memory of it. But what did it mean? The earth was divided. Some, some people conjecture, think that... Uh, Originally, the earth was one large landmass, and that at the time of the flood, tremendous energy, remember when the springs of the deep burst forth? Tremendous forces of energy broke the earth's crust, and that, that was almost a precursor for what some people now think and follow the theory of continental drift. And if you look at the globe, you can almost take the continents and, and put them back, and it seems like they fit into one landmass. No one's ever been, able, been, ever been able to prove that, by the way, to my knowledge. But some people think that, that this means that it was, Joktan was born in the time, or uh, Peleg was born in the time when the earth was divided just physically. The continents broke apart, and, uh, and, and the, 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 the real visibility of it happened around the time of the Tower of Babel. But let me tell you what I think it means. I'm not sure that it means that exactly. I think a better interpretation is that it refers to the division of the peoples at the Tower of Babel linguistically and geographically. The people were divided. Up till that time, they were all one. We'll read that as we get get into chapter 11. Up till that time, they were all one. But now we see they're divided. They're divided linguistically and geographically. They're spread all over the place, as we've just been tracking. And it's interesting that the dividing line falls between the two sons of Eber, Peleg and Joktan. One line leads to Babylon, and the other line leads to the family of Abraham. Isn't that stark? That's so powerful. Right there. There's the dividing line. In the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. What does that mean? Men were divided into two major, two major streams. One leading to Babylon. Indeed, it's interesting Two major, if you will, lines of humanity develop right there. One line, if you look at chapter 11, verse 4, one line are those characterized by this. They seek to make a name for themselves. That'll preach, won't it? 
They'll seek to make, make a name for themselves. Boy, I tell you, uh, you, you, could, you could work that for a while. Are you seeking to make a name for yourself? Because look where it leads. It leads right to Babylon. And Babylon is symbolic all through the Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation, about absolute utter wickedness. The second line diverges. And these people will be those for whom God will make a name through the call of Abram. Would you rather have God make a name for you or would you rather make a name for yourself? You see the stark difference? The days when the earth was divided between two streams of humanity. You see right there the separation between the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of God. You see the change, the difference between unbelievers and believers. In fact, the book of Revelation says it will be given a new name. Isn't that true? If you drop down to verses 26 through 30 now, we see we have listed the 13 sons of Joktan, Peleg's brother. We think they've all, they settled all in Arabia. Verse 31 is the summary verse for Shem, as it was for Japheth in verse 5, and for Ham in verse 20. In verse 32, the last verse of the chapter is summary of the families of Noah after the flood. I noted one interesting feature in this chapter. The number of the clans of Noah's sons listed, 70. 70. Does that sound like a familiar number? 70? Do you recall when the, when the children of Israel, Jacob became Israel, and there was a famine in the land of Palestine, and God told them to go down to Egypt? and they sojourned in Egypt for 400 years. How many children went into Egypt from the land of Canaan? Anybody remember? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 22. Deuteronomy 10, 22. Moses says, Your fathers who went down to Egypt were how many? Seventy in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky. They sojourned in Egypt for over 400 years, became a nation. And they would come out of Egypt. And Moses tells them as, they, as they're getting ready to come out of Egypt, again in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, he tells them this. He reminds them of their histories. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. How many generations do we have here in this Genesis chapter 10? Seventy. He said he set, up, he set up all the boundaries according to the number of sons of Israel. Seventy. Seventy people went into, the, went into Egypt. 
There's an interesting verse in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Do you have that back there, Bob? Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Write this down. should be on your computer. There it is. Paul says, from, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And notice this. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Is chapter 10 a significant document? Absolutely. Moses talks about it. Paul talks about it. The number 70 is significant. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24, 70 sevens were decreed, Daniel says. Israel was led, in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, Israel was led by 70 elders. And later, there were 70 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That was the equivalent of the Supreme Court in Israel. Interestingly, 70 scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek to produce the Septuagint. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 10, that the length of a man's life was 70 years. And if he was exceptionally strong, maybe 80 years. The Babylonian captivity, which we will study, lasted 70 years. Jerusalem and Herod's temple were destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 A.D., approximately 70 years after Herod his attempt to murder the infant Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world. Luke chapter 10, verse 1, depending upon which version you read, Jesus commissions either 72 or 70 disciples to go out two by two to preach the good news, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons, to set the captives free. Now, you say, what is the significance of 70? I have no idea. <laughs> I just thought it was very interesting that the number kept coming up, and I thought I would point it out to you. We anticipate the 11th chapter of Genesis, and the 11th chapter of Genesis will tell of the event, a significant event, of almost equal importance to that of the great flood. Was the, was the flood of Noah's day a significant event? Absolutely. It was worldwide in its effect. And the events at the Tower of Babel, recorded in chapter 11, had similar worldwide effects on men. You don't want to miss this. Let me give you your homework. I want you to read chapter 11. I want you to read Romans chapter 1. And I want you to read the book of Acts, the first two chapters, focusing on the day of Pentecost. Genesis chapter 11, Romans chapter 1, and then in the book of Acts, the first two chapters, focusing on the day of Pentecost. And I want you to link those three passages together in your own thinking and prepare as we prepare to talk next time about this. Shall we pray?
Lord, thank you for your word. Is God's word great? It's impressive, isn't it? Rich. Lord, what a document you've given to us in this book. This is not an archaic book. This is not an an ancient book that is insignificant and irrelevant. It is very relevant. It is your truth. And through it, Lord, you tell us all that we need to know. Indeed, you said that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. God, thank you. Thank you for this book called the Bible. Thank you for your Holy Spirit by whom that we can understand this book. It makes sense to us. comes alive to us. God, thank you for gifting us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for teaching us. We worship you this morning. Keep your heads bowed for just a couple moments. I want to take a moment to talk to those of you that may not know the Lord. There may be a couple of people here today. The Bible is God's book. It's God's word. It's preeminent. And you can only understand it and you can only trust it when you take a step of faith. But that step of faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not suspending your your intelligence or your rational capacity. You don't check your mind at the door when you come into the church. Taking a step of faith is this. I know there's something wrong with me. I know there's something wrong with me. The Bible says that something wrong is called sin. Whether it's emotional, relational, physical... Sin takes its toll on our lives. That's why we die. That's why we get sick. That's why we experience loss. All of this is the product of this force, this power that rules us. It's called sin. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, came to this earth because he so loved us He came here not just to teach us another system of ethics or another system of philosophy. He didn't come just to do miracles. He came to free us from sin. And the only way he could do that is by taking our sin upon himself. He died in your place. He died in my place. 2,000 years ago, on a cruel, ugly cross, the cruelest way the, the, the Romans could think of to torture and kill people. Crucifixion. It was a slow, agonizing way of death. Jesus was beaten about the head. His back was torn open with, a, with, a, with whips. His head was probably twice the size of a normal head due to the swelling. As he hung on that cross for those hours, he gagged in his own juices, suffocated. The nails pierced his wrist and the medium nerve in the wrist caused excruciating pain. And if the physical suffering and pain wasn't bad enough, the real pain was being accused for that which he didn't do. 
you know what that's like. When someone accuses you of doing something that you didn't do. But Jesus didn't make excuses. He didn't deny it. He absorbed it all. He took your guilt and mine. He took your blame and mine. He took our diseases and all the suffering and the grief that go with them. He took it all upon himself on that cross. He suffered in ways that are unimaginable to you and I. And why? The Bible says because he loved us. He wanted to save us from sin. Now the question is, what do I do with that? Nobody else has died for you. No one else has paid the price for you. No one else has suffered for you except Jesus. Not Buddha. Not Muhammad. Not any of the modern gurus. Not Confucius. They say a lot of flowery things, but they don't solve the problem. Only Jesus breaks the power of sin. And he says to you, now believe in me, trust in me. If you believe in me, I'll save you. You shall have life. Those that believe in an afterlife want to know that they'll go to heaven when they die or some good place. Most people think they're going to go to heaven if they're just basically good people. Not so. You only go to heaven if someone buys you a ticket, pays your way in because you can't pay it. You don't have the price. Jesus pays that ticket. That's why we trust him. That's why we believe in him. All of that to say this. Jesus invites you. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. If you believe in me, you shall have life. The question is, do you want it? If you're here this morning as someone who has never yet committed his life or her life to Jesus Christ, I want to give you that opportunity. I'd like to lead you in a short prayer of commitment. But you have to know that you need it. You have to know that you are a sinner. And you have to be willing to turn and repent from your sins and start following Jesus, just like all the rest of us. We have been where you are. If that describes you, and you want to pray, then I'm just going to ask you to signal me. Just lift your hand. That'll be a signal. Say, Pastor, I want to pray that prayer. I want to commit my life to Jesus. Is there anybody at all here this morning that wants to do that? Anybody at all? Just lift your hand now. Okay, I see your hand way in the back. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? Just lift your hand now. If you're unsure... Where you stand with God, now's the time when you can settle that once and for all. I see this hand here, too. God bless you. All right. And your hand, too. God bless you. I see that hand over there. Okay, good. On the aisle. God bless you. Good. Okay, I see your hand, too. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. I'm going to pray this prayer. You pray along with me. In fact, I'm going to ask everybody to pray this prayer. Is that okay? Let's all pray it together out loud. God, I confess that I am a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Show me my pride. My foolishness. Grant me repentance. 
Help me to turn from these things. I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on that cross for me. I believe he took all my sins, all my guilt, all my grief, all my sorrow upon himself. I believe that he was buried and I believe that he rose after three days to bring new life. So I receive that new life and I affirm that new life. I value that new life and I commit myself to walk in that new life. From this day forth, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for healing me. Thank you for being gracious to me. Thank you for being merciful to me. I love you this morning, and I call you my Father. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Turn to somebody give them a hug. God bless you. Let's stand together and worship God.